My subject to you today is a difficult topic, and so we have a whole lot of guests here. So I apologize to you guests in advance that you are just joining in on the sermon series for the year. It has been about We Believe, and today's message is We Believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven. It's a controversial issue, but it's an issue that's important for us to talk about and to stand on. So as you're listening in, know that this message was not necessarily designed to be appealing or user-friendly to a wide audience, per se. This is just who we are. This is what we believe, and so you're listening in on a glimpse of what we would normally have here. And toward that end, I do want to welcome you for being here and braving the weather and the roads and all of those things. We had 550 registered. I don't know how many showed up, but if you are here for our See You Monday, would you stand up and let us welcome you to chapel here at Cedarville University? We believe Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. Some years ago, I visited Harvard Divinity School. A cousin of mine was taking some classes there and wanted to introduce me to some of the faculty members and the leadership at Harvard. I went into the office and sat down with that leadership, and after some cordial conversation, they asked, can we ask you a difficult question? I said, absolutely. I'd be happy for you to do so. They looked at me and they said, do you really believe that all Muslims a devout Muslim is going to spend eternity in hell. I sat there in the chair next to a relative in front of two learned PhDs and responded with the answer that I believe is the only biblical answer and biblical response to that question. Yes, unfortunately, I do believe that a devout Muslim will spend eternity in hell. I watched as the expression on the face began to fall, perhaps disgust, disbelief that one of those narrow-minded fundamentalists and errantists existed with a PhD and was sitting in that office in front of them. I won't tell you about how the rest of the conversation went on, but needless to say, they were absolutely appalled that somebody would believe a devout Muslim would not spend eternity in heaven with Christ. If you have your Bibles this morning, open them up to Acts chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 5 through 22. Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 22. If you have your iPhone, your iPad, whatever, get to the right app, click on the app, scroll to the right spot, pull out your journals. I've got several things I want you to take notes on today. I want you to write down, be prepared. Acts chapter 4, verses 5 through 22. As you're turning there, let me set up the scene. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John made their way to the temple for 3 p.m. prayer. They walked by a lame man who was sitting there who was laid daily at the gate called Beautiful. He was there to ask for alms. It was a popular spot. It was a place where he would receive help, and they knew that. And so he was set there, and as he walked by, he spoke to Peter and John, and Peter looked at him, and Peter said to him, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. He reached and he helped him up, and it says the man leapt to his feet. A miracle was performed. His ankles, his legs were strengthened. But not only that, the brain waves, the brain action that had to take place for him to understand how to stand, how to balance, how to walk, how to leap, all of those things took place miraculously in a moment, in an instant, where this person who had been laid there because he could not walk, could not leap, who was a beggar, all of a sudden stood up and leapt to his feet, and it says he began walking and leaping. 
If you've ever watched somebody who's gone through an accident or somebody just learning to walk or somebody who's coming out of something, it's difficult for them to even take a step. And yet here is a complete, full, incredible miracle of a person who has been laid there up, jumping up and down, leaping, walking, and giving praise to God. Now, up until this point in the book of Acts, Peter and John had received relative acceptance, but beginning in chapter four, persecution begins to move to the forefront. Peter and John are arrested. They're placed in custody until the following day. And despite that fact, Luke records in the book of Acts that the number of believers rose up to 5,000. The broader context for this passage in Acts chapter four is a trial and then a verdict. Today, we look just at the trial in Acts chapter four, verses five through 12. I would encourage you to read the, the verdict that happens later on this afternoon. Here's what we see in Acts chapter five. This is the word of God. As such, would you stand in honor of the reading of God's Word? Says on the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Dear Lord, today as we look at your word, we pray that we would just catch a glimpse of your glory. Lord, that you would help us to consider the passion that we should have for the gospel of Jesus Christ and to spread the grace that you have extended to us. In your name we pray, amen, and you may be seated. We see in our text here in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John and a lame man. We'll call the lame man Exhibit A. Exhibit A now stands in what, at least in my mind, is a semicircle type fashion in front of, as the text says here, the scribes gathered together. This is probably a reference to the Sanhedrin. The 70 plus one, back in Numbers eleven sixteen, it is described as the 70 leaders and rulers, and then you have Moses as the additional one at that point in time, becomes the Sanhedrin, the 70 plus one, the rulers of the day. It tells us in our text in verse six that they was there with Annas, the high priest. Annas was the previous high priest who had served from 86 to 14. But just as we will often refer to people who have been a judge or who've been a governor or have been a president, even after their time in office, we'll still refer to them as President Bush or President Clinton or things of that nature. Here, they refer to him still as the high priest. It says we have Caiaphas here. Caiaphas is the current high priest. He served from AD 18 to 36, all throughout the time that Pilate ruled over Judea. It says next that we have John. We don't know exactly for sure who this is, but it's possible reference to Jonathan who would replace Caiaphas in AD 37. And then we have Alexander. We don't know who Alexander is, but perhaps a member of the family, as it says following that, all who were of the high priestly family. They had set them in the midst. 
And it says, they inquire. Now, in our minds, we see perhaps an august occasion in front of people who are dressed in formal attire. And in my mind, they're in the middle and there's a semicircle around as they're beginning to question them. And the text says, they inquired. It's a plural inquiry, even though we would suspect that perhaps there is one grand inquisitor of them asking the questions. The text gives indication that questions may be fired from everywhere as they were all inquiring of them. And here it says they inquired, by what power or name did you do this? The you in this sentence in the Greek is delayed to the very end to make it emphatic. They are pointing out the fact that Paul and John are fishermen. They are not part of the Sanhedrin. In our modern day and time, we might say it this way. You don't have ordination papers. Who licensed you? What church said you could go out and preach the gospel. You don't have an MDiv degree. You don't have a PhD in theology. You have no credentials. There's no BA in Bible under your letters or under your name or on your resume. And so they inquire to them this question and they say to them, by what power or by what authority do you have the right to do this? A similar question had been asked of Jesus in Matthew 21, 23. They asked, by what authority are you doing the things that you're doing? And Jesus responds to them, and says to them, John the Baptist, who is he? He responds with a question. They don't answer the question, but the New Testament bears witness that Jesus is doing this on the authority of God. Here, Jesus's followers then are being asked a similar question. By what authority do you do this? In this occasion, as intimidating as it would have been, with all of the pressure and the anxiety, here we see Peter, The last time Peter was near this particular area, Peter was the one who denounced Christ three times before the rooster crowed. Peter was the one who, when a little girl asked him, aren't you a follower of that Jesus of Nazareth? He melted like hot candle wax and drooped his shoulders as he responded, no, not me. I'm not one of those. So what makes the difference in Peter's response in our text today versus Peter's response as he wilted in fear and did not stand boldly for Jesus Christ? The text tells us here in verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, a continual filling of the Holy Spirit is what Ephesians calls us for in a passive way, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Here, Peter referenced as being filled with the Holy Spirit, again later on to be referenced the same as being filled with the Holy Spirit. Here, having the Holy Spirit living within him, that power filling him in the Holy Spirit in a right relationship with Christ stands boldly. And there's a lesson for us there in that we too must be filled with the Holy Spirit if we expect to stand boldly. That filling of the Holy Spirit is not a charismatic baptism of the Holy Spirit. It is a walking with Christ. It is a commune and a fellowship with our Creator, with Jesus Christ. Here, Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, rulers of the people and elders. Notice here what he does. There's a good lesson for us here educationally as well as looking at the text. The question that was posed to him was this, what power, what authority? Show us your credentials. Peter, recognizing being filled with the Holy Spirit, perhaps through the Spirit's wisdom, responds back with a question to them as well. If we are being challenged here today, and look at what he says as he turns this, for a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? 
He takes the question and he changes it. And we understand this as you talk about debating and as you talk about argumentation and articulation. He who frames the debate wins the argument. The Sanhedrin had framed the debate around what authority do you have? Show us your credentials. They had no credentials, so they reframed the debate and they said to them, if we're here today to stand trial for a good deed done to a crippled man, who's going to punish them? This is PR 101. They shifted the question and they said to them, are you really holding us in trial for a good deed done to a crippled man? This man who couldn't walk is now up leaping and running around and you're questioning us on how it happened? Is that really your concern? And it wasn't their concern. But here, Peter wisely shifts the question and he gives us in verse nine, the crux of this passage. The word healed is the word sozo in the Greek, which means salvation and shows up again at the end of this passage in verse 12. And so even though our translators have accurately translated this as healed, when we look at the original, we see that the word healed is saved. And there's a play on words here. By what power or by what authority was this man healed? Was he saved? And at the end, it says, there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved than that of Jesus Christ. And you see the play on words here that Luke records in the book of Acts. Peter responds to them, And he says in verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel. It's by the name of Jesus Christ. He used his earthly name and he used the prophesied Christ and he put the two together to be clear that it was by Jesus Christ, the prophesied Messiah. But unless they were confused about who Jesus Christ is, and you and I both know they were not confused at all about who Jesus Christ was, he elaborates here and he says, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. In contrary form to the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, Peter continues to elaborate on this Jesus Christ of Nazareth when he says to them, you know who the one I'm talking about, you know who he is, the Jesus Christ of Nazareth there in verse 10, whom you crucified, whom then God raised from the dead. By this man is he standing here before you well. This Jesus is the stone And the reference here would have been well known to the Sanhedrin back to Psalm 118.22, where it's talking about that stone and Jesus himself referenced this. It's referenced often in the New Testament in Matthew 21.42 and Mark 12.10 and Luke 20.17 and And 1 Peter references it in chapter 2, verses 4 and 7. It's this cornerstone. It's this stone which you looked at and you said, this stone is not worthy. But God said, this stone is not only worthy. This stone is the chief cornerstone. It is the perfect stone. It is the stone. That is the person that I'm talking about. The stone you rejected, you the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he says in verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter says to us in our context today recorded by Luke in the book of Acts that there is no salvation under Gandhi. There is no salvation under Buddha. There is no salvation under Muhammad. There is no salvation in Scientology. There is no salvation in technology. There is no salvation in good works that earns us the right to get to heaven. There is no salvation in sacraments offered as efforts of work. The way to salvation is through the name of Jesus Christ. The way to salvation is to humble ourselves, 
to repent of our sins and to place our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, which he has already accomplished on our behalf. Nothing that we can do adds to what he has already done. There is no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Now, that message brings great hope to us who believe in Jesus Christ. But it also brings great consequences when we think about much of the world that does not believe in Jesus and our obligation to go to them. The text says here, there is no other name by which we must be saved. It doesn't say there's no other name by which we can be saved as though it's something that we could earn, something that we could do in and of ourselves. The text doesn't say there is any other name by which we may be saved as that would provide some possibility that it may not work out rightly, that it may not happen, some doubt in it. It says there is no other name by which we must be saved. There's a strong argument to be made here. It is necessary for us to be saved only through the name of Jesus Christ. So if we're honest with ourselves, the text is pretty straightforward. The text tells us there is no other name, there's no other power, Jesus is the only way, and still yet we respond with questions. So today, I want to take a few of those questions by way of argumentation and application to look at some of those questions that we commonly face as we present the case that Jesus is the only way to be saved. The first question that commonly arises is, what about general revelation? Can people not respond to the light that they have received and then go to heaven? The argument could be that a man on an island, the argument could be somebody in another country looks out and we understand that God has placed in our, in our hearts, in our beings, in our souls, a conscience which condemns us, which tells us this is wrong, you shouldn't do this, or this is right, that God has given us, as Psalms talks about, his revelation that all creation declares that there is a God and we look out upon all creation, we look out upon the consistencies of the seasons, we look out upon the sunset going over the horizon and the stars as they rise above and we understand that there is a God. Could we then respond to that general revelation in such a way that it would be salvific? Many people ask this question. Unfortunately for us, Romans chapter 1, verse 18 through 23 gives us the answer of what we as humans, with our sinful nature, with our sinful inclinations, fallen from Adam and Eve, do with general revelation. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's what we do. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is what happens. Romans continues on and it tells us in Romans 3, 9 that there are none righteous, no, not one. There are none of us that truly seek God. We have inherited a nature which causes us to run away from God, to flee from God. We are not innately good, but we are innately sinful from an inherited sinful nature. Romans 3, 23 tells us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 5, 8 tells us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then Romans 3, 6, 23 brings us the offer of the free gift of salvation, which is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. General revelation tells us that there is a God and places us without excuse. 
but it does not save us. I've told you some scuba diving uh, stories before, and I'll share another one with you now. On our 10th anniversary, not this most recent trip we took where we went with sharks, but the 10th anniversary, my wife and I went scuba diving. We both enjoy scuba diving, love it. She's much better in the water than I am, and uh, so she's, she's a natural at it and uses much less air than I do, but we were going on a 10-year anniversary trip to Jamaica. We went down to this resort that was all-inclusive, and, and it included scuba diving. So everybody else was there to eat and to do other things, and, and we were just there to scuba dive. So we did like eight scuba dives in four days' time, and, and then we couldn't do the dive the next day before we flew out. But, but we were down scuba diving, and we had seen a lot of incredible sights. We had seen some stingrays as they would float off the bottom as they were covered with sand to where you couldn't see them, and it would, would depart from them. And, and the scuba diving instructor there said to me, he said, you guys need to get certified as advanced open water scuba divers. Well, I said, that sounds great. I, I like, you know, advanced. I like that. You know, I'm an academic guy. I like degrees. Let's add another degree to scuba diving resume. My wife, not liking to spend money, said, no, thanks. I'll go on the dive with you, but you can pay the money to get the little word advanced because we really don't need it. So I did. She didn't. So I'm now advanced and she's not. But anyway, that's another story <laughs> for another day. The diver tells us, she's not here so I could say that, but I'll tell her when I get home. When, When we went down, he said, you're going to have to go down 100 feet under the water, and I've got to demonstrate to you what nitrogen narcosis does to you. I said to him, what are you talking about? He said, well, nitrogen builds up in your bloodstream and in your body when you're under the water, and there's the pressure that's all around you, and it affects different people in different ways, and some people lose it, and they go down. So part of being an advanced certified diver is to understand how nitrogen narcosis, or being narked, as some people refer to it, affects you. You have to write your name backwards on the boat. I'll time you. We'll take you 100 feet deep under the water. You write your name backwards again. I'll time you again, and I'll let you see the effects of what it does to you so you'll know what happens. There's a standard. Well, I looked at this scuba diving instructor with amazement and disgust because he obviously didn't know who I was. I mean, I started taking karate when I was five years old. I'm a fourth degree black belt. I mean, my Halo gamer rating was really high at one point in time. I, I, played, I played football and went through two a days. This is no problem going 100 feet deep under the water and breathing oxygen from a tank, right? This is no big deal. There's nothing going on here. I mean, I even stayed in the Holiday Inn Express. This is easy. <laughs> and so we go scuba diving down and we descend slowly and gently down to the 100 feet. And, you know, I had actually even cheated a little bit because when we were on the boat, I said, I'm going to get this guy. And so I wrote slower than I really could have written just to prove the point that I was going to beat my time and be the first person that had beaten the time. And, and so then we go a hundred, yeah, that's how depraved I am. Sorry. And then we go a hundred feet deep down below the water and he looks at me and he gives me the signal to go. And I'm writing on a slate with a pencil. And when he says, go, I'm ready. I mean, it's game on, right? This is, this is the start of the drag race. And I begin to write my name backwards and I finished and I look at him and, and tell him done. And he turns the watch around and shows it to me. And it took me twice as long to write my name backwards under the water as it did on the boat. We continued the scuba dive, and in my mind, I could concentrate on nothing other than my utter failure. And why? I looked over at my wife, and I noticed violet fingernail polish. I thought to myself, man, you are losing it. Her fingernails were red last night. What in the world is going on here? And when I looked at the violet, I made a note to myself, ask about this when you get to the boat, because when you're 100 feet underwater, it's not a good idea to take your regulator out of your mouth and begin to try to talk to somebody else. It's not very effective. It could be hazardous to your health. And so I made note, we got to the boat. 
I asked the scuba instructor after being humbled severely, can you tell me what happened? And he said, when you descend to that level, there's a constant pressure around you and you descend slowly so that you don't feel it, you don't realize it, you don't recognize it. You think you're still in control of everything, but you are in an environment where you have so much pressure upon you, you cannot accurately perceive what is happening. I said, can you answer another question for me? I looked over at my wife's fingernails and they were violet when we were under the water, but last night they were red and I'm looking over at them right now on the boat and they are red. Why in the world is it that my brain was messing with me to say that they were violet? And he looked at me and he said, well, now that's a different story because as you descend underwater, you lose the light of the sun. And as you lose the light of the sun, you begin to lose the colors of the rainbow. And so they fade away from the Roy G. Biv that we all learned earlier on. You lose your red, your orange, your yellows, your blues, and you move down to indigos and violets and that's all you can see. And so you have to have the light of the sun in order to see clearly. Now you see where I'm going here. We live in a fallen world where there is pressure all around us. We are fallen human beings with sinful nature. We have been affected in all of our capacities, even our logic and our reason that we cannot know or see things as God would have intended us to. And so our general revelation is even skewed. Our revelation of ourselves, what we perceive in this world, we think we're not moving, but we understand that we are on a giant sphere that is rotating and moving at great speeds because we cannot accurately sense what is happening. We need a standard to come along. And wouldn't it be great if we had a standard that would come along and tell us what truth is that we can measure things by to say, this is what's really happening and this is what's really true. And God in his grace has given us that standard in his word, his revelation to us. Without the revelation of the Son, the Son of God, we can't see clearly what's happening in this world, why we're here, who we are, or who He is. Just like without the Son, I couldn't see the right colors on my wife's fingernail polish. Second objection, is Scripture clear on the issue? We read today Acts chapter 4, saying there's no salvation in any other name. I give you these verses without further explanation, just so that you will know Scripture is clear. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hebrews 10, 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice, the one sacrifice, no additional sacrifice for sins, he sat down. Why did he sit down? Because the work was finished. He sat down at the right hand of God. It was Christ. It was single. It was for all time. There's no other name under heaven. 1 John 5, 11 and 12, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. You can look at 1 Corinthians three eleven. As it says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. First Timothy 2, 5 and 6, for there's one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then Philippians 2, 9 through 11, which we have already looked at in chapel this semester. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Bible consistently testifies that there is one true God and that salvation comes only through Jesus Christ. 
Objection number three, what about those devout seekers, those devout religious people who simply don't know the name of Jesus? Do you really believe that a devout religious seeker will go to hell simply because they did not know the name of Jesus? I'll get to the verse on the screen here in a few minutes, but let me lead you to that point. I understand that this is a struggle. I understand that this is a very real question with very real consequences and how harsh it sounds to say that a religious devout person is not going to spend eternity with Christ in heaven. I understand that some of this is because of our own evangelical Christian laziness. As we look out at Muslims who are willing to die for their faith or Mormons who are going to go on missionary stints and spend years of their life, and I recognize some of this is shame on us that we are not more devoted to the truth of the gospel of Christ than they are to their lie. I recognize also that some of this is the fact that they are earning their way to heaven where we are attaining heaven only through the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ on the cross. So let me offer you a few thoughts to try to help you with this. Peter was addressing whom in Acts chapter four? The most religious people of his day, the Sanhedrin. He could have looked at those devout Jewish practitioners and he could have said to them, you know, you're very faithful in your practices and your religion and what you do. Because you're so faithful, you'll be okay. It's no big deal. Don't worry about anything. And yet he did not say that to them. He said to them, the person that you've rejected, the person that you've crucified, the stone that you set aside, it's that name and that name only under which salvation can happen. You think about Acts 10 too, which talks about a man named Cornelius. Cornelius is described as a devout man who feared God with all his household and gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. What a description of a person to have. Surely this man, a devout seeker of God, could get to God on his own, right? That's not what the text tells us. The text tells us that through a dream, Peter was sent to him so that Peter could tell him about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Remember that Ethiopian eunuch in Acts 8 who had traveled all the way up to go to the temple and he couldn't go into the temple because he was a eunuch? but he had purchased a copy of the Isaiah scroll at great cost to him. Surely a person who traveled that far, who spent great expense, who was that devout would be someone who would go to heaven, right? Well, the Holy Spirit records in Acts how he sent uh, Philip to go and intercept this man in his chariot as he was traveling. And as Philip hears him reading from the scroll, he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And explain to him the gospel from the Old Testament. And the Ethiopian eunuch says, what then prevents me from being baptized as he accepted the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see over and over throughout scripture that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. We recognize that religion or rituals will not save you. We recognize this in our own life as well. It's not the faith of mom and dad because God has no spiritual grandchildren. It's not the church that you went to because That may be religious or ritual practices, but that's not what saves. It is by repentance through faith by the grace of Jesus Christ on the cross alone that saves us. So if you are trusting in anything other than the name of Jesus Christ, I urge you to talk to someone, to seek God, to repent, to fall on your knees before the only way to be saved. 
Romans 10, 14 and 15 tells us, how will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they believe in him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And this is why we emphasize global outreach on this campus. We have an obligation to take the grace that we have been given and to take that grace, the gospel, the good news to the ends of the earth, to share it with other people faithfully here in Cedarville, beyond in Ohio, throughout the United States and to the ends of the earth, we must be passionate about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the grace that he has extended to us. The last objection, that's not fair. God isn't cruel enough to send all those people to hell who have never had an opportunity to hear the gospel. Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, 39, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. If there had been another way, would God not have answered his prayer? I understand the initial reaction. I don't want to trivialize it. You're right. You have a point. Here's the point. It's not fair that we sit in chapel five days a week and hear the word of God preached. It's not fair that we have churches on every corner. It's not fair that we can turn on our TV anytime we want or turn on radio stations or listen to students even here playing music in our own radio station and do things that we hear the gospel consistently, repeatedly, throughout the day, throughout our life, and others on the other end of the world have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. We are arguing that it's not fair that we have so much grace and they have so little. It's what we're really arguing. Because let's shift the question a little bit. What's fair is God sending all those who have rebelled against him to hell. What's not fair is Jesus, the sinless one, having to pay For our sins with his death on the cross, that's not fair. That's grace. We don't really want what's fair because what fair is what's fair condemns all of us. We really want grace. That's what we want. And what we look around and feel guilty about is that we have so much of it. And yet often we have so little passion to take that gospel message to the ends of the earth where they have so little grace of themselves. Here we see the reason that we should be passionate about going and doing missions. But here we also see the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus prayed in Matthew 26, 39, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass by me. And yet God did not let the cup pass by the prayers of a desperate, agonizing son in a garden with sweats of blood dripping down his head, knowing what he was about to go through. Instead, God poured the wrath of all mankind upon Jesus on the cross to provide a way of salvation for those who would repent and believe. If we say there are other ways to heaven, we trivialize the death of Christ. Think about it. To believe that there are many ways to heaven trivializes the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross. I'll never forget that day when we were playing in the garage and my son ran and he tripped and we have a a ledge in our garage and, and he's four years old now and it happened this year. And when he fell, he hit his head on that ledge and he hit it right here above his eye. There was a nice gash. I grabbed him and and held on to him and hugged him and held him tight. And I told my wife, I said, we got to go to the hospital. We got to get stitches. 
And so we took off to the hospital and we were there and they took great care of him and they put the numbing agent on his head, on his eye to numb him for the stitches that he was going to have to have. And, and he had 12 stitches or so that had to get put in his eye. And they told me they brought a sheet in and were laying him down on the bed. And, and they said to him, uh, could you hold him while we take care of putting these stitches in his eye? And I said, yeah, I can take care of that. We put the blanket over him. I was to grab the blanket and to secure him down to make sure that he didn't move. And I knew that if he moved, he would likely get hurt. This was near his eye. We didn't want a needle to go into his eye or somewhere else. So he needed to be still during this. He's four. He doesn't understand being still. He doesn't understand stitches and why it's important for his long-term health. He doesn't understand anything except there's daddy and I trust daddy. As I held him down, And they began to put the needle into his eye and he began to wince in pain. I will never forget the look of the four-year-old son who trusts daddy. As he looks up from that table as if to say, what are you doing? As I try to communicate to him, this is for your good. This is for your best interest. I'm doing this because I love you. And the pain he was going through was necessary for what he needed at that moment in time. But it ripped my heart out to hold my son down while something was happening. And in that moment, it struck me of how God, our Heavenly Father, must love each one of us to pour out wrath upon his son because he knew it was good and it was right and it was what had to happen for our salvation. And for us to say there are other ways to get to heaven, we trivialize the necessity of Jesus' death on the cross. And I plead with you, don't trivialize what Jesus has offered for you in that while you were yet a rebel running away, he died for your sin. There was only one way to provide salvation. Jesus' death. There is only one way to receive salvation. It's by grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. What do we take away? I hope we take away a passion for the gospel of Jesus Christ, a love for our Savior, and a desire to get this message to the ends of the earth. May we all be faithful witnesses in our daily life, and may we all be concerned about getting this message to those who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Lord, I pray that today you would help us to have a passion for your gospel, for your truth. Lord, a growing desire to please you, to honor you with our lives, to live for you. Lord, help us not to become cynical, not to become apathetic. Lord, help us to have a passion to do all that we can so that you may receive honor and glory, so that people may hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And God, we do give you glory this morning and thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for our sins. And it's in his great and glorious name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.